The reading today is Acts 17, verse 16 to the end of the chapter. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. Areopagus. Mm -hmm. Areopagus. Where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious, for as I walk around and look carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, rather he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human, human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He, was given proof, he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, We want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dianthius, a member of the Areopagus. Areopagus, also a woman named Demarius, and a number of others. Thank you. 
Well, good morning, church. I think we made a full circle back to the sermon, so I'm, I'm hoping so anyways. It's good to see everybody here today. Um, i got to fix my, uh, my suspenders here. Um, God is good. And all the time. Amen, amen. So um, today, the theme uh, or the word of the day, like P.B. Herman, right? The word of the day is invitation. Uh, invitation. Uh, of course, there's an invitation for all of you to come and to dine with us uh, to, uh, to support the youth group and be a part of that spaghetti, I believe it is, spaghetti meal, and, uh, and contribute. Um, of course, we also have a, an invitation. We, we've been reading a book called Living God's Love, uh, an invitation to Christian spirituality. Uh, I encourage you to go out and, and get that. You can follow along. And I got an invitation. And I'm really really excited about it. It's like, it's got to be like the best invitation I've ever had. Um, you know, I've had a number of invitations. Think about invitations that you've had before. Some of the ones that really got you excited. Like, when I was doing this, I was thinking, in comparison to this invitation, I was thinking, you know, one time I had a friend named Sam Nelson, a good friend of mine, who uh, invited me to, uh, to courtside at a Clippers game. And it was, it was an amazing invitation. Uh, one of the most fun times I've ever had at a basketball, uh, basketball game. It was kind of a, a five-star event. It was funny because we got, uh, we got in this Astro van, and we were driving up. There's like a Ferrari in front of us and, and something else behind us. Somehow he got a hold of these really nice tickets. We had like valet service. We were get, like, getting out the Astro van and walking in. Um, walk in, got, got courtside. And you think those guys are tall on TV. Oh, my goodness. These guys are massive. One of the... One of the best invitations I ever had. But this one, this one's even better. Um, you guys want to know what it is? Well, wait, I, got, I got to take them off, right? So I had this other invitation one time where it was just amazing. It's probably the most, most inspirational invitation I ever had. Uh, I have a good friend named uh, Faith Haygood, who's uh, he's a black preacher in, uh, of Church of Christ in... Uh, in, uh, in Carson, and he invited me uh, to uh, basically uh, discuss the future of race relations in the Churches of Christ in South Central LA. And uh, it was another one of those amazing moments. Uh, very inspirational. I got to sit on a, a pew or a, a bench of, uh, with a number of uh, other people talking about um, how we come together as a, as a brotherhood over that particular issue. And um, I guess I'm thinking of it now because it's, uh, it's um, um, Black History Month, and uh, there's still some work to do. Still some work to do. Um, but, but this one, this invitation, this is even more inspiring. You guys want to know what it is? Okay, one more story, one more story. So I had this other invitation one time, and this was probably the most meaningful invitation I ever had. I, uh, I was asked, invited to be a part of a cohort at Pepperdine where uh, early career ministers and pastors got together to talk about how church can lean into the story of a city. And, and at that point, it was Los Angeles. And so they had Los Angeles leaders, they had uh, professors come in, and we had an opportunity. I mean, they, they put us up in, in some great, great places. Uh, Five-star treatment, amazing lectures, 
Uh, and, and every time we met, we met over a course of two years, eight sessions, every time you walk away, you're just like, wow, there's so much work, so much meaningful work we can be doing as a church in a city. And, and in fact, they even flew us out to Washington, D.C. At that point, it was the furthest east I've ever been. And um, we got to sit at the feet of some people who were in charge of global uh, relationships and, and religious relationships. And it was just very, very meaningful, but nothing, nothing compared to this. You guys want to know what it is? Um, are you sure? I mean, because, okay, here it comes. When I opened it up, it said, to Matt. That's me. <laughs> it says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. And it's signed, Jesus. You know, the first time I saw uh, a guy by the name of Louis Giglio do that, it was fascinating to see the response of the people in the crowd. Because some of them were annoyed, right? I was one of those people. I was like, I don't even care anymore, dude. <laughs> right? Um, some of them, right, were disappointed. Like, oh, okay, Jesus loves me. <laughs> but what's most amazing about their response is when we realize it's not theatrics. It's sound theology. God has invited us into relationship with him. Think about that a second. Every single human being on this planet has received an invitation to, to Christian spirituality. <coughs> I'm just going to point at you if you'll, if you'll do it. Um, and I'm just so excited <laughs> that we get to present that invitation to the world around us. Now, some of you, I know undoubtedly, are probably asking the question, so why this language, Christian spirituality? Right? Why, why unpack it in this, this, this language, these words? These words are intentionally chosen, so why do we talk about Christian spirituality as opposed to uh, just faith in Christ or relationship with Jesus? Why, why Christian spirituality? And so I, I want to share with you why this morning as we begin. Uh, the next slide begins to unpack why? And the very first slide is that we are, if you'll click it again, uh, we are as a church developing a way to make disciples. All right, part of our 3D vision for 2019 is, is developing a way to make disciples. And um, you're probably thinking, well, it's one of those dumb moments. Don't churches just automatically make disciples? And the reality is, is sort of. Um, but we can be more effective in the way we make disciples if we are intentional and lean in and partner with the Holy Spirit. And so uh, having a way to do it. Every, every disciple is my conviction. Every single person who, who, who is in here is a disciple of Christ 
needs to know, number one, how they are in the process of discipleship, and number two, how they can invite someone else into the process. Amen? I mean, that seems pretty standard. And so we are developing that. And, and another way to think, think about uh, Christian discipleship is Christian spirituality. It, it's essentially discipleship 101. Another reason we do it, if you'll advance one more time, uh, is because we are a whole lot like Athens, a lot more like Athens than we have been in a long time. What I mean by that is because people often say, well, Matt, what are you talking about? This is a pre-modern culture with paganism and, and they believe all sorts of different things about the gods and, and they're polytheistic. And, and, you know, to be honest with you, that's kind of us today, too. Postmodernity is a term or postmodernism is a term that reflects this reality. It's essentially saying we're past modernism. Which means we're no longer looking to evolutionary philosophy or humanism or technology to bring about the sort of salvation that Star Trek talks about. You know, this utopian society. Once we get technology, enough technology, we'll have enough resources for everyone. And once we have enough resources for everyone, then we won't fight anymore. And we won't have conflict anymore. And you know what? All technology has done is made us more lethal than ever before. And so people are like, okay, I get it. Modernism isn't going to fix us. Modernism isn't going to, to be able to handle those, those ultimate questions that philosophers and children ask. Like, who am I? What am I doing here? And where am I going? And so they're, they're looking past modernism. And many of the answers, many of the places they're looking for is pre-modern. They're beginning to to go back and to look at older stories and other ways to answer those ultimate questions and to find out who they are, where they're going, and what it's all about. That's not just my guess. The next slide. It's actually uh, kind of rooted in facts. Uh, this is a Pew Research uh, site that talks about uh, basically laying out the fact that more and more people are beginning to um, refer to themselves as spiritual. Uh, about 27% of Americans refer to themselves as spiritual as opposed to uh, religious and spiritual. Now, if you take that, those two broader categories together uh, of being spiritual and religious and those who are just spiritual, it, it's, it's, a, it's a huge portion of society. About 47% believe themselves to be both religious and spiritual, and this growing number is beginning to think of themselves as spiritual as opposed to, as opposed to religion or religious. Um, you say, well, man, what's the significance of that? Well, the significance of that is that means the majority of people that we're going to run into, quote-unquote outsiders, people on the outside of Christianity looking in, think of themselves as people who are longing for a spiritual experience. They're looking for things in a more internal, relational way. And there's been a challenge. Next slide, please. There's something missing in the middle, right? Um, you know, the story of the Northeast is fascinating, and you guys know it better than me. But I am I'm beginning to realize that because of the, of the religious um, 
I don't know, demographics of the area, um, we're struggling to get a message that meets these spiritual people. Because of two things. One, because, because of ritual and because of our misunderstanding of grace. And what I mean by that, the, the majority of, of religious expression up in the Northeast, at least in terms of Christianity, uh, are really high form uh, or high church sort of organizations. Uh, Greek Orthodox, uh, Russian Orthodox, um, uh, Catholicism. Uh, these, these churches typically reach out to people through the, through the means of ritual. And they say, uh, if you participate in the sacraments of our church, you can be made right with God. Um, on the other side of the, the paradigm, there's also what we would consider Protestant churches or evangelical churches who, um, I don't know if it's in reaction to that or, or whatever, have a, have a tendency not to say, come and participate in our ritual, basically get the communication apart that if you just simply obey these rules, you can be made right with God. And if you've got to press all of that together, what you have is predominantly in the Northeast, you have the Christian, the broad Christian banner of things with a religious message to a people who are looking for spirituality. Um, people who seem to know or would rather say, shouldn't this be a story about God reaching me rather than me reaching God? Uh, next slide. This is why the definition in our first chapter is so important. Because I think this is very orienting to us. And I believe the sort of the heart of the message that is missing when we communicate to the outside world. Christian spirituality is falling in love with the God we see in Christ. That mysterious process of God <laughs> lovingly at work in us is not a trick or a shortcut or a technique. It is a way of life. It is believing from the heart, the very center of our being. Authentic Christianity is God at work in us. Let that sink in a second. It's God at work in us. This is why Christian spirituality is completely different than all the other forms of spirituality that is in the world today. All the other forms of spirituality say you look in because salvation is on the inside. Christianity says you can't save yourself. You have to look out. All the other forms say, listen, here are some steps to take. Here are some, an eightfold path and... And, and so on and so forth. And if you do these things, you will engender God's favor and love on your behalf. And the story of Scripture is completely the opposite of that. The story of Scripture is you couldn't do it yourself, you can't do it yourself, and so God had to do it for you. Christian spirituality is falling in love with the God we see in Christ. The mysterious process of God lovingly at work in us. Um, I believe Paul said it once. It is God to both will and to work in our lives. Hmm. So, 
Why Christian spirituality? Because we're not getting the message out the way we should. We're either leading with ritual or we're leading with legalism. And at both times, people are looking and they're hearing, they're, they're hearing a religious message instead of a message of relationship. In fact, that's, that's where we're going next. In fact, that's why the book spends so much time talking about how this thing called Christian spirituality is relational. It's why our view of God matters. Uh, Matthew 25, verse 24 and 25 is a good example of, of why it matters. Then the man who had received one bag of gold, Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. I love this story because it illustrates perfectly how one's idea about God correlates to your behavior. This is why the book says, hey, what is your view of God? How do you view him? Because if Christian spirituality is relational, it matters what you see. It matters how you understand God. Now listen, it's not because what you understand, how you understand God changes Him. Malachi 3, 6 says, I am the Lord thy God, I change what? I change not. I'm the same today, tomorrow, forever. James says, with God there is no shifting shadow. So our view of God doesn't change God, but our view of God changes how we relate to Him. And it determines if we have a relationship or not. This man viewed the master as exacting. This man was lazy. And so he adopted a view of God that allowed him to bury his talent. Our view of God is very important. Question, what's your view of God today? Is your God present is your God still active in the lives of people? Or is he somewhere on a mountaintop waiting to see how you end the race? Or is he in the battle with you? Is your God a convenience store God where you put the quarters in and you get what you want out of him? Maybe he's a distant God. Maybe he's an angry God. Is he an angry God uh, keeping score to see how you're doing? What kind of God is he? Are you angry at him? Has he disappointed you? Did he fail to live up to your expectations? Our view of God matters. In fact, Tozer said, what a person views about God is probably the most important thing about them. How do you view God? Because a Christian spirituality, beginning of discipleship, has a lot to do with how we see Him. Uh, it it's just, just makes sense. If, if God is some unruly, mean, wrathful judge, no wonder people want to hide behind law to make sure that He plays fairly with them. So... Christian spirituality is, is, is relational. Uh, the next slide. And it always has been. It always has been. Listen, listen to what, we, what was read this morning. Acts 17, 24 to 28. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. I, I, I love the turn. Uh, basically, idolatry, paganism was, hey, we're creating these things to get to God. And, and Paul says, you guys, God has created you to get to him. 
I've created you and I'm I'm coming after you. He says, rather he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else from one man. He made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times and history and boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though what? He is not far from any one of us. You remember those ultimate questions? Who I am? What am I doing here? Where am I going? For in him we live and move and have our very being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his what? Where's offspring? Paul says, listen, Christianity has always been relational. God has set up this whole world so that you are funneled into a relationship with Him. There's really only two. There's the son that's in the house and the son that's lost that God is desperate for to come home. All the children of God. That's why the book also mentioned that the problem with paganism, the problem with idolatry, isn't the fact that we have a God-shaped hole in our life that we often seek to fill. That's how He created us. Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes tells us that God placed eternity in our hearts. He created us for relationship with Him. This is why people who, you, who swear up and down they would never turn to God often turn to God when they, when they face these ultimate questions, when they lose a loved one or they're about to face death themselves. God has built us to turn to Him. And without the help of modernism, without the help of so-called philosophy and education, uh, sometimes we just kind of default that way. The default has always been theism. It's fascinating, too, because when you turn on the television, you would swear up and down that faith and God was sort of an endangered species. In reality, it's just the opposite. There are vastly more people who believe in God or a God than people who don't. We're built that way. The world's built that way. The world is literally, time, history, is built to bring God's lost children home. It's relational. Christian spirituality is is relational. Why talk about Christian spirituality? Because the the world isn't hearing a relational message. They're hearing a religious message. And we need to make sure it is relational in our communication. So so how do we do this? How do we respond to people in the world? How do we to make sure that it is is relationship? Well, that's that's really what this whole book is about. It's what the next few uh, paragraphs were about. It's sort of like this divine romance. Um, it's fascinating how awkward this can be for us. Um, I remember I came home from preaching school one day. Sing the song with me if you know it, right? I keep falling in love with him over and over and over and over again. I keep falling in love with him over and over and over and over again. He gets sweeter and sweeter as the days go by. Oh, what a love between my Lord and I. I keep falling in love with Him over and over and 
over and over again. First time I brought that song home and sang it for my home congregation, all the men said, what are you doing? What do you mean falling in love with Jesus? What do you mean he gets sweeter and sweeter as the days go by? What kind of love song is that? It's almost as if romantic love is somehow off bounds with God. We're taking a risk talking about God that way. I would tell you we're taking a risk if we're not talking about God that way. Have you ever noticed the language of romantic love? It's all consuming. How dare we think that belongs to one another? I mean, we, we, we watch Romeo and Juliet and we think, oh, how, oh my goodness, it's so romantic. They, they love each other so much, they, they would die for each other, right? That's, that's stupid. <laughs> your spouse, your children, your friends, very important, amen? We love them dearly. Amen? They don't get the same love God does. This is how the Bible talks about it. You ever, uh, I remember one time, it's not even just people, sometimes it's our dreams we love so much. Then we lose them, and all of a sudden we lose our relationship with God. Why? Because your dream was your God. This language rightly, rightly responds, rightly reflects a relationship with God. If it makes you feel corny, guys, get over it. He does get sweeter and sweeter as the days go by. He does. He's used the language before. In fact, he told a story that I wouldn't even tell as a preacher. You guys remember the story of Hosea? God says, hey, go marry this chaste, beautiful young lady. No, he says, go marry a prostitute. She's going to cheat on you. You're going to go back and win her back. Why? Because that's how I feel with you, Israel. Because I love you so much. I love you like a husband loves a wife. And you just keep cheating on me. And yet... He comes after her. He comes back for her. And he uses the language of romance for, for his relationship with, with each other, with, with God. This is, Therefore I now am going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. Therefore I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the days she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me what? You will no longer call me what? Say that again. You will call me what? And no longer call me what? Do you realize God doesn't want to just see him as master? God doesn't want you to just see him as the all-consuming God of the universe who's in control of your life. He is. But he wants you to see him as husband. And last I checked, that's kind of a romantic relationship, yeah? Well, it should be. 
Matt's going to tell us, teach us all about that when, um, you know, marriage class comes up. But do you, do you see the, the, the romantic relationship that God, 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 don't just look at me as master. It's not enough. If you're just working with God as if he's your master, you're going to burn out and you're going to fail. I, I hear that sometimes. Matt, you don't understand. If you don't give him the thou shalt and thou shalt not, people are going to mess up. And they're clueless. Because laws don't motivate us. Love does. You want people to follow God? You get them to fall in love with him. And they will follow God to the ends of the earth. But we're even afraid to even bring it up. <laughs> Loving God will change you from the inside out. A divine romance. That's why I think sometimes we need to be really good at what Paul's crowd was, right? We're, we, we're kind of like Athens, but we haven't even gone far enough as Athens. Even Athens figured, you know, Paul quoted a pagan quote, a pagan poet. Did you, did you hear that? Even as some of your own poets, he wasn't canon, right? He wasn't, he was, he said, they even get it. Sometimes our culture gets it. Let me give you a couple ideas of how you can present this with people. What it looks like, how it can work. Next slide, please. You guys remember that story? I think it was called the playbook or no book. That's right. That's right. No book. I knew what it was. I was trying to protect my man card a little bit. <clears throat> no book. That's not just a picture of a guy winning back his bride. That's a picture of God. Telling the story over and over again to get his beloved to remember the relationship they had. Right? That's what God's been doing. God tells the story over and over again. As his people, we tell the story over and over again until that moment where someone says, I understand the invitation is real. I understand this relationship is real. But it's also in other places. Next slide. You guys remember that? Uh, remember that record? Click it one more time. Listen. Yes, you're listening to Chicago at church. One more click. 
Just one more slide click. There you go. Uh, why is that song about people? I was sitting there in the shower today. I was washing and praying. And uh, that song just came to my mind. I was in the shower listening to that song. I don't know what it was, but it was just like, think about it. You're the meaning in my life. You're the inspiration. Your family, your loved ones, they're not the meaning. You bring meaning to those things, but they're not the meaning. Because you know how I know that? Because if you lose them, then you have nothing else to live for if they're meaning. God's the meaning in our life. He's the inspiration. And, and, and when, when we get that relationship right, all those other relationships, our spouse, our children, and so on and so forth, they become even more significant and holy and righteous because they don't have to be God for you anymore. They can just be them. Why is that for us? Why isn't that for God? But you see, our world is just filled with stories of Hosea. It's filled with these, with these stories and narratives. And you can sit down with people and say, you know, Peter says, Hera got it right. <laughs> God loves you. And let me show you how. I could even show you in a movie or on a song. And then, of course, you push it back to the story that's told in Scripture. A divine romance. The, the, the book ends by reminding, or at least the first chapter ends by reminding us of the Trinity, of how God has loved us as a Trinity from beginning to time. It's a really important thing to remember. Um, without the Trinity, you just have a being. <laughs> but with the Trinity and the idea of the three and one, which is what that symbol is about, is you have, a, you have a divine being that isn't just a force like Star Wars, uh, you, you, have a, you have a personal being that lives in eternity and relationship. Without a trinity, you don't have love. With a trinity, you have love that even precedes time. And I love the way that he talks about love encountering the, the individual, the reader. He talks, about, he talks about how the Holy Spirit is something that brings the fruit of love into your life. Question, has the Holy Spirit brought the fruit of love into your life? Has Jesus taught you what love looks like? Have you been taught to think of Jesus as, uh, as, as the judge that's, gonna come, judge that's coming back one day to just set it all right? Or do you also see Jesus as that's what love looks like? Do you see Jesus as an example for for the Jews in the past, but not the church in the present. Sometimes our, our ecclesiology has messed that up. So, so much so that we look from Acts on to look at church, and we've kinda, we kind of said, well, the Gospels, that's the Old Testament. Interesting point, most of the Gospels were written, at least a good portion of them were written after the epistles. For the church. So that the church 
would fall in love with Jesus and stay in love with Jesus. Have you, have you felt your father's approval and ritual? Has, was baptism something you just had to do to make sure you get it right, just in case? Was, was baptism so you could join a church? Was baptism because everyone else was doing it that day? Or in baptism, when, when you were buried with Christ, this union with Christ, Roger, is so, so complete, right? He even says, not, even at, not just at the table, but also in our baptism, when, when we are raised or buried beneath the water and come up, we, we breathe in the Holy Spirit, as, as Roger was mentioning earlier ago. And, but do you also hear, well done. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Or is it, hey, I got in the church. Or it's, hey, I'm getting out of hell. That's why, that's why baptism, it has to, you have to have, a, you have, to have a, a healthy theology of baptism. If not, we end up baptizing for weird, strange reasons that don't really incorporate all that God wanted it for. Sometimes we, we baptize our children. And I think, you know, I, I used to get really theologically like down on people, like, you shouldn't do that, or, ah... It's awesome that you've dedicated your child to God. But baptism is so that a person can dedicate themselves to God. And here, well done. You are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Last I checked, most infant baptisms, they're not very happy. <laughs> not critical of it per se. You want to baptize your child? That's cool. Make sure you haven't given them an opportunity to get baptized as an adult. Because baptism is what it's, it's so we can experience it as an adult. To hear my father say, I love you, son. You're mine forever. Mm. It's a divine romance. You know what? Let's pray. We just read a passage, God, that you're not far from any of us. <laughs> we, we even bow our heads, close our eyes, as if that gets us closer to you. You were here the whole time. You're here right now. You're in every single life and in our, our midst. And the invitation stands. You're knocking. You want to come in. God, help us to get this right. Help us to help people understand that God does have 
a relationship in mind with you. Now, we live in a world that is desperate for a relationship with you. And we keep giving them ritual, and we keep giving them obedience, and we keep giving them religion. And we need to be giving them what you have done for them. God, help us to, to make sure that relationship is, is communicated. Whether it's from the Word of God, ultimately from your Word, but even in all the other portraits of love that we see around us, God. Because you are the meaning in our life. You are the one that's supposed to bring us inspiration. We want to love you for eternity. God, would you help us? Help us see you. The real you. And God, if in this room, no doubt, with as many people in here, there, there has to be some that have wondered about this. I've done all the right things. I've checked all the right boxes. But can I actually have a relationship with you, God? Would, you, would your Holy Spirit affirm for them right now that the invitation still waits? Could you help us hear you say, I love you? In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So I'll be standing. We have one last song. Um, I guess it's at the end. This is a good one, too. Amen. Turn my heart over.